Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is For Reading Out Loud. So good to have you with me. A brace of stories tonight, one a classic, one more modern, one ironical, one playful, one realistic in its way, the other slightly surrealistic. They're both, one way or another, about love. The first one is by Anton Chekhov, and it's called simply Love. Three o'clock in the morning, the soft April night is looking in at my windows and caressingly winking at me with its stars. I can't sleep, I'm so happy. My whole being, from head to heels, is bursting with a strange, incomprehensible feeling. I can't analyze it just now. I haven't the time. I'm too lazy. And there, hang analysis. Why? Is a man likely to interpret his sensations when he is flying head foremost from a belfry, or has just learned that he has won two hundred thousand? Is he in a state to do it? This was more or less how I began my love letter to Sasha, a girl of nineteen with whom I had fallen in love. I began it five times, and as often tore up the sheets, scratched out whole pages, and copied it all over again. I spent as long over the letter as if it had been a novel I had to write to order. And it was not because I tried to make it longer, more elaborate, and more fervent, but because I wanted endlessly to prolong the process of this writing, when one sits in the stillness of one's study and communes with one's own daydreams while the spring night looks in at one's window. Between the lines I saw a beloved image— and it seemed to me that there were, sitting at the same table writing with me, spirits as naively happy, as foolish, and as blissfully smiling as I. I wrote continually, looking at my hand, which still ached deliciously, where hers had lately pressed it, and if I turned my eyes away, I had a vision of the green trellis of the little gate. Through that trellis, Sasha gazed at me after I had said good-bye to her. When I was saying good-bye to Sasha, I was thinking of nothing and was simply admiring her figure as every decent man admires a pretty woman. When I saw through the trellis two big eyes, I suddenly, as though by inspiration, knew that I was in love, that it was all settled between us and fully decided already, that I had nothing left to do but to carry out certain formalities. It is a great delight also to seal up a love letter, and slowly putting on one's hat and coat, to go softly out of the house, and to carry the treasure to the post. There are no stars in the sky now. In their place there is a long whitish streak in the east, broken here and there by clouds above the roofs of the dingy houses. From that streak the whole sky is flooded with pale light. The town is asleep, but already the water-carts have come out, and somewhere in a faraway factory a whistle sounds to wake up the workpeople. Beside the post-box, slightly moist with dew, you are sure to see the clumsy figure of a house-porter wearing a bell-shaped sheepskin and carrying a stick. He is in a condition akin to catalepsy. He is not asleep or awake but something in between. If the boxes knew how often people resort to them for the decision of their fate, they would not have such a humble air. 
I, anyway, almost kissed my post-box, and as I gazed at it, I reflected that the post is the greatest of blessings. I beg anyone who has ever been in love to remember how one usually hurries home after dropping the letter in the box, rapidly gets into bed, and pulls up the quilt in the full conviction that as soon as one wakes up in the morning, one will be overwhelmed with memories of the previous day, and look with rapture at the window, where the daylight will be eagerly making its way through the folds of the curtain. Well, to facts. Next morning at midday, Sasha's maid brought me the following answer. I am delighted. Be sure to come to us today, please. I shall expect you. Your S. Not a single comma. This lack of punctuation and the misspelling of the word delighted, the whole letter and even the long, narrow envelope in which it was put, filled my heart with tenderness. In the sprawling but diffident handwriting, I recognized Sasha's walk, her way of raising her eyebrows when she laughed, the movement of her lips. But the contents of the letter did not satisfy me. In the first place, poetical letters are not answered in that way, and, in the second, why should I go to Sasha's house to wait till it should occur to her stout mamma, her brothers, and poor relations to leave us alone together? It would never enter their heads, and nothing is more hateful than to have to restrain one's raptures simply because of the intrusion of some animate trumpery in the shape of a half-deaf old woman or a little girl pestering one with questions. I sent an answer by the maid asking Sasha to select some park or boulevard for a rendezvous. My suggestion was readily accepted. I had struck the right chord, as the saying is. Between four and five o'clock in the afternoon, I made my way to the furthest and most overgrown part of the park. There was not a soul in the park, and the tryst might have taken place somewhere nearer in one of the avenues or arbors, but women don't like doing it by halves in romantic affairs. In for a penny, in for a pound. If you are in for a tryst, let it be in the furthest and most impenetrable thicket where one runs the risk of stumbling upon some rough or drunken man. When I went up to Sasha, she was standing with her back to me, and in that back I could read a devilish lot of mystery. It seemed as though that back and the nape of her neck and the black spots on her dress were saying, Hush! The girl was wearing a simple cotton dress over which she had thrown a light cape. To add to the air of mysterious secrecy, her face was covered with a white veil. Not to spoil the effect, I had to approach on tiptoe and speak in a half-whisper. From what I remember now, I was not so much the essential point of the rendezvous as a detail of it. Sasha was not so much absorbed in the interview itself as in its romantic mysteriousness, my kisses, the silence of the gloomy trees, my vows. There was not a minute in which she forgot herself, was overcome, or let the mysterious expression drop from her face. And really, if there had been any Ivan Sidorich or Sidor Ivanich in my place, she would have felt just as happy." How is one to find out in such circumstances whether one is loved or not, whether the love is the real thing or not? From the park I took Sasha home with me. The presence of the beloved woman in one's bachelor quarters affects one like wine and music. 
Usually one begins to speak of the future, and the confidence and self-reliance with which one does so is beyond bounds. You make plans and projects, talk fervently of the rank of general, though you have not yet reached the rank of lieutenant, and altogether you fire off such high-flown nonsense that your listener must have a great deal of love and ignorance of life to assent to it. Fortunately for men, women in love are always blinded by their feelings and never know anything of life. Far from not assenting, they actually turn pale with holy awe, are full of reverence, and hang greedily on the maniac's words. Sasha listened to me with attention, but I soon detected an absent-minded expression on her face. She did not understand me. The future of which I talked interested her only in its external aspect, and I was wasting time in displaying my plans and projects before her. She was keenly interested in knowing which would be her room, what paper she would have in the room, why I had an upright piano instead of a grand piano, and so on. She examined carefully all the little things on my table, looked at the photographs, sniffed at the bottles, peeled the old stamps off the envelopes, saying she wanted them for something. "'Please collect old stamps for me,' she said, making a grave face. "'Please do.' Then she found a nut in the window, noisily cracked it, and ate it. "'Why don't you stick little labels on the backs of your books?' she asked, taking a look at the bookcase. "'What for?' "'Oh, so that each book should have its number. And where am I to put my books? I've got books too, you know. What books have you got?' I asked. Sasha raised her eyebrows, thought a moment, and said, "'All sorts.' And if it had entered my head to ask her what thoughts, what convictions, what aims she had, she would no doubt have raised her eyebrows, thought a minute, and have said in the same way, "'All sorts.' Later I saw Sasha home, and left her house regularly, officially engaged, and was so reckoned till our wedding. If the reader will allow me to judge merely from my personal experience, I maintain that to be engaged is very dreary, far more so than to be a husband, or nothing at all. An engaged man is neither one thing nor the other. He has left one side of the river, and not reached the other. He is not married, and yet he can't be said to be a bachelor, but is in something not unlike the condition of the porter whom I have mentioned above. Every day, as soon as I had a free moment, I hastened to my fiancée. As I went, I usually bore with me a multitude of hopes, desires, intentions, suggestions, phrases. I always fancied that, as soon as the maid opened the door, I should, from feeling oppressed and stifled, plunge at once up to my neck into a sea of refreshing happiness. But it always turned out otherwise, in fact. Every time I went to see my fiancée, I found all her family and other members of the household busy over the silly trousseau. And, by the way, they were hard at work sewing for two months, and then they had less than a hundred roubles' worth of things. There was a smell of irons, candle-grease, and fumes, things scrunched under one's feet. The two most important rooms were piled up with billows of linen, calico, and muslin, and from among the billows peeped out Sasha's little head with a thread between her teeth. All the sewing-party welcomed me with cries of delight, but at once led me off into the dining-room 
for I could not hinder them, nor see what only husbands are permitted to behold. In spite of my feelings, I had to sit in the dining-room and converse with Pimanovna, one of the poor relations. Sasha, looking worried and excited, kept running by me with a thimble, a skein of wool, or some other boring object. "'Wait, wait, I shan't be a minute,' she would say when I raised imploring eyes to her. "'Only fancy, that wretch Stepanida has spoiled the bodice of the barege dress.' And after waiting in vain for this grace, I lost my temper, went out of the house, and walked about the streets in the company of the new cane I had bought. Or I would want to go for a walk or a drive with my fiancé, would go around and find her already standing in the hall with her mother, dressed to go out, and playing with her parasol. "'Oh, we are going to the arcade,' she would say. "'We've got to buy some more cashmere and change the hat.' My outing is knocked on the head. I join the ladies and go with them to the arcade. It is revoltingly dull to listen to women shopping, haggling, and trying to outdo the sharp shopman. I felt ashamed when Sasha, after turning over masses of material and knocking down the prices to a minimum, walked out of the shop without buying anything, or else telling the shopman to cut her some half rubles worth. When they came out of the shop, Sasha and her mamma, with scared and worried faces, would discuss at length having made a mistake, having bought the wrong thing, the flowers in the chintz being too dark, and so on. Yes, it is a bore to be engaged. I'm glad it's over. Now I'm married. It is evening. I'm sitting in my study reading. Behind me on the sofa, Sasha is sitting munching something noisily. I want a glass of beer. Sasha, look for the corkscrew, I say. It's lying about somewhere. Sasha leaps up, rummages in a disorderly way among two or three heaps of papers, drops the matches, and without finding the corkscrew, sits down in silence. Five minutes pass. Ten. I begin to be fretted, both by thirst and vexation. Sasha, do look for the corkscrew, I say. Sasha leaps up again and rummages among the papers near me. Her munching and rustling of the paper affects me like the sound of sharpening knives against each other. I get up and begin looking for the corkscrew myself. At last it is found, and the beer is uncorked. Sasha remains by the table and begins telling me something at great length. "'You better read something, Sasha,' I say. She takes up a book sits down facing me, and begins moving her lips. I look at her little forehead, moving lips, and sink into thought. She is getting on for twenty, I reflect. If one takes a boy of the educated class and of that age and compares them, what a difference! The boy would have knowledge and convictions and some intelligence. But I forget that difference just as the low forehead and moving lips are forgiven. I remember in my old Lovelace days I have cast off women for a stain on their stockings, or for one foolish word, or for not cleaning their teeth, and now I forgive everything—the munching, the muddling about after the corkscrew, the slovenliness, the long talking about nothing that matters. I forgive it all almost unconsciously, with no effort of will, as though Sasha's mistakes were my mistakes and many things which would have made me wince in old days 
move me to tenderness and even rapture. The explanation of this forgiveness of everything lies in my love for Sasha. But what is the explanation of the love itself? I really don't know. Our second story tonight is by the German writer Kurt Kusenberg. He was born to German parents in Göteborg in Sweden and grew up in Lisbon, Portugal, before settling in Germany and studying art history in Munich and Freiburg. He started his writing career as an art critic, but soon branched out into various forms of journalism and worked in the publishing industry. He discovered he had a flair for writing short stories, and that is perhaps where he had his greatest popular success. His stories are often odd and playful, taking a whimsical idea and building a story around it. I hope you'll enjoy My Thieves by Kurt Kusenberg. About four years ago, I bought the old spacious house with the large garden. Although the purchase price was low, no one envied me the property because it was considered a wreck. It probably was, too. The house was in bad shape, cracked, and what was supposed to be a garden looked more like a wilderness. For me, however, it was still a real bargain, because I had also bought something invisible and delicious, the silence. The property stretched so wonderfully far that no sound could reach me from outside, not even a dog barking. The garden's high wall, the trees, the bushes, they kept out all the noise and gave me the peace I needed to work. I do my work at home, and I don't earn badly. Actually, it's up to me whether I earn a little or a lot. I could double my income through sheer hard work, but to me leisure is more important than work. I wouldn't be able to have the house and garden fixed up anyway, not even with the greatest effort. You know how money goes. Besides, I like old houses, and I like the wild garden. I was content because I enjoyed the solitude. Sometimes, to be sure, at night it seemed to me as though there were people out in the garden. I didn't see them, I didn't hear them, but I felt them, and often enough tracks in the grass proved me right. Whoever it was that was trespassing on my property, lovers, vagrant boys, or old tramps, it bothered me that I felt put upon. I could have gotten a dog, to be sure, a big, fast, vicious one, to drive away my unwelcome guests, to scare them off forever, but I don't like dogs. I could put up with people in the garden better than a dog. One morning I missed my wallet. In vain I searched in all my jackets, on all the chairs and tables. No sign of it. Two days later I found it, looted and sodden with dew, outside under a copper beech tree. Then it occurred to me that I had often missed money, bills that I put in a book as a bookmark, or coins that I had left on the desk the night before. Likewise, in the pantry I realized afterward things had gone missing. So, thieves were climbing into my house at night, groping their way through the rooms, silently, listening to my breath, delighted when I snored, and stealing from me without a worry in the world. Well, I didn't like that, not so much for the losses they inflicted on me, but for their brazen intrusion. I hated the fact that they came close to me. But what could I do? 
Locking doors and windows is not my style, not even when traveling in hotels. I sleep so deeply that a thief needn't bother moving on tiptoe. Since I couldn't find a remedy, I did the only thing that helps against irksome conditions. I got used to the thieves. The thieves, in turn, got used to the fact that I got used to them. When they saw that I was forgiving of the losses and that I didn't call the police or hide or lock away my money, they assumed I approved of their abuse and was willing to provide them all with a little. I say all of them because it seemed to me that there were many at work. One only took banknotes and later put a few coins on the table as change. Another took only my silver money. A third was content with copper but I suspected he was poking around in the pantry, too. A fourth touched no money at all, but wore my suits instead, and a fifth was helping himself to the flowers in the garden. I let him do it, too, but when he cut my favorite roses one day, it made me angry. As luck would have it, that same day I went to the flower market and saw a man standing there who was obviously selling my roses— I looked him straight in the eye, and he blushed. I knew then that I had him. At home I pinned a sheet of paper to the wall and wrote on it in large letters, The following are not to be touched. My time, my silence, my writing materials and paper, the scissors, the pocket watch, the reading glasses, the dressing gown, and the roses. Maybe that wasn't very smart of me. By forbidding certain things to the thieves, I allowed them everything else, so to say. They could assume that from now on I considered myself their partner. In any case, they not only complied with my wishes, but even occasionally brought paper, ink, and pencils to my house. Yet they continued to take what they thought was theirs. Encouraged by the prohibition sign, the thieves left short messages on slips of paper— they wanted to have a conversation with me. Of course, it was mostly complaints. The checked pants are too tight for me. Can't they be let out? wrote the man who wore my suits. And the kitchen thief reported, I miss the spicy liver sausage. Another time I read, Couldn't get in through the window. I'm not a young man any more. Or, There were only two pennies there. That's not enough to live on. One day, when the banknote thief had carried off quite a lot, he wrote, "'Today I dusted, cleaned three windows, and straightened the stovepipe.' It's easy to see that the thieves also came during the day when I was in the city. Hidden in the garden, they saw me go away, and at night they could easily watch through the window when I went to bed. Sometimes I woke up when someone bumped into a chair or knocked something over, but I didn't let it show. I rolled over in bed, and went back to sleep. I had no desire to talk to the thieves, for this was what made the thieves endurable, that I had dealings with them without having to see or speak to them. The thieves were there, and yet not there. They kept their distance, and that was a comfort. Yes, I paid for it, but I didn't think the price too high. Since I didn't have a family, I was able to give away a few things, and if at times I was fleeced a little too much, I would make up for what was missing through more work. Thieves are poor devils. They usually can't do any proper work. They only know how to steal, or at least they act as if they lack other skills altogether. 
you have to give them a little free rein. Some might suspect that my easy-going, almost hospitable relationship with the thieves arose from a feeling of guilt, or that it gave me some unnatural pleasure to be robbed. Neither was the case. I was not wealthy. I was not living from an inheritance that whispered to me that possessions were theft. Not a bit of it. I earned my living myself, with my head and hands. I only let them take what I myself had put together. As to the second point, if I were one of those people who enjoy their own harm, I would certainly have wished for many more thieves than I had. On the contrary, I made sure that the thefts did not go beyond a reasonable level, and the thieves restrained themselves. We played along together, the thieves and I. That was all. One morning I noticed that the roses had been attacked again. Angrily, I went to the market and examined the wares of the man who stole flowers from my garden. I did not find any roses on his stand, however. The man, on the other hand, seemed to know what was bothering me. He shrugged his shoulders, and, so expressive is the human face, he gave me to understand by look and gesture that he could explain what had happened if he were only allowed to speak. But I didn't want to break my prohibition. I turned away and went into town. When I got home that night, I found a note that read, It wasn't us. Us. That was my thieves. That was the dishonest and yet orderly group that enjoyed my tolerance. So, the note said that strangers had arrived who didn't follow our rules. Why, I wonder, didn't my thieves drive the troublemakers out? Why didn't they defend a property they shared so cordially? I didn't understand them. If the number of thieves increased, it was bound to come to a bad end, because I wasn't willing to do any more for the parasites than I was doing right now. The next morning, roses were missing again. Disappointed and full of anger, I decided to lie in wait that night. My anger fairly rumbled within me, my thoughts dealing out beatings. I worked longer than usual and drank a lot of coffee, because I knew I was in for a sleepless night. Around four o'clock I threw on my fur jacket, took a sturdy stick, and went into the garden. The uncut grass was still standing, the ferns were growing rampant, weeds were spreading. Finding a hiding place was easy. Everywhere there were thick bushes and shrubbery. I chose a spot that seemed appropriate and kept an eye on the roses. Fifteen minutes later, the thieves broke into my house, one through the door, another through the window, each in their own way. They wanted to show me that they knew I had my own ways and the things between us stayed the same. By showing their trust, they asked for my trust. I saw them walking through the lighted rooms, I saw them taking what they were allowed to take. I must have been waiting for an hour and a half when I suddenly heard something. I peered more sharply into the darkness and spotted a figure messing with the roses. I came up, quickly and quietly, and had a shock. Strictly speaking, we were both startled. The woman, because she saw herself suddenly caught, and I, because the woman was beautiful. "'It's theft,' said the stranger. "'I don't want to sugarcoat it. But I couldn't resist. I had to come and see my roses.' "'Your roses?' I asked. The woman nodded. That's what I call them, 
even if I have little claim to them. I planted them when the park was still ours, when it was still a real park, twice the size it is now. You grew up here? Yes, in the house you live in now. I was abroad for a long time, and my parents didn't tell me they had to sell, first half the park, then the rest. I didn't find out until I came back two weeks ago. Was it an accusation? Not likely. The woman had to know I'd bought the property honestly, albeit cheaply, since it had gone through many hands. Still, I felt like a thief. But why, actually? Because I bought it cheap? That was luck, and luck has its own merit. It doesn't come to everyone. Nonsense, I heard a voice inside me say. Everyone is entitled to luck, especially this beautiful woman, and possessions are theft. When you bought the park, you stole it from her. My thoughts got confused. You too love the roses, I asked, to say something. Yes, she replied. I guess we have that in common. Another person, an old man, for example, would not have made it difficult for me to think through the moral calculations and to prove to him that he had no demands on me. But this woman confused me because she was beautiful. Thief! buzzed in my thoughts. You stole the park from her. You must give it back to her. Well, then, I had to. To make it brief, I did it. I gave her back the park and the house by marrying her. But the hour had struck for the thieves, my poor thieves, because my wife didn't like the fact that they were climbing in and making off with things. She could use it all herself. I don't know what became of the thieves. Sometimes a noise wakes me up at night, and I think there is a thief in the room. But there is no one with me but my wife. You've been listening to Love by Anton Chekhov and My Thieves by Kurt Kusenberg. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. If you're enjoying this series, please tell your friends. Drop me a line, if you will, and let me know what authors or stories you would like to hear. My email address is rfigge, that's R-F as in Frank, I-G-G-E, at worcester.edu. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, all the best. Thank you.